Hello, and welcome to the Great War Podcast, an in-depth look at the origins, battles, and consequences of the First World War. Episode 8, Dreadnoughts and Whatnots. Last week, we left off with a discussion of the Russo-Japanese War and the signing of the Treaty of Portsmouth in September of 1905, which brought an end to that bitter conflict which had lasted for over a year. For this week, I want to try to fill in some of the gaps which I had intentionally left open from last day. Namely, what were the French, English, and Germans up to while the war in the East was still ongoing? And why did they end up not getting involved? I had originally intended to incorporate answers to these questions in the last episode, but frankly, the years 1904 to 1907 are simply too busy to try and cover in a single episode. So be forewarned, there is a little bit of overlap into this week, but it should serve to give us a well-rounded view into the complex events which occurred during this period in history. So let's go find out just what the heck was going on. Ever since the signing of the Franco-Russian military alliance in the Anglo-French Entente Cordiale, thanks to listener Joe Arnold for setting me straight on that, the priority within the German foreign ministry had been to find a way to undermine these two agreements, in the hope that by doing so, would turn France's allies away from her, and send the French back into their Bismarckian-imposed isolation. The big fear facing Germany at this point was that it was widely expected that England and France would transform their harmless colonial settlement into a formal military alliance aimed against Germany, joining the already dangerous Franco-Russian military pact. But the German foreign ministry would need to be careful in their attempt to cause friction, as any tinkering or blatant moves against either of these two agreements could end up antagonizing the three powers even further. But with the Russians embroiled in their conflict with Japan, an opportunity presented itself. When in February of 1905, the French decided to put their recently signed Entente Cordiale with England to good use, it began the process of slowly exerting their political hold over Morocco. On February 21, 1905, a French military expedition was sent to the independent North African country, under the leadership of Ambassador René Talendier, to demand that the young Moroccan Sultan, Abdulaziz IV, hand over the control of the Moroccan military and police forces to their new French overlords. The Sultan, who had always looked to Britain for foreign affairs advice, sent a telegraph to London, hoping that the Foreign Affairs Secretary, Lord Lansdowne, would call upon his counterpart, French Foreign Minister Théophile Delcasset, to convince him to call off Talendier's demands. But Lansdowne, along with many others in the British Foreign Office, shared the opinion that in the wake of the Boer War in South Africa, which was a near disaster for the empire, that England should remain uninvolved in any foreign expeditions to the African continent. Plus, the 1904 Entente Cordiale had just ended decades-old disputes between France and Britain, and Lansdowne was wise enough not to put these agreements to the test so soon, and so told the Moroccan Sultan that he was on his own. Abdul Aziz, although only 27 years of age, was not going to be deterred so easily, and after being turned away from Lansdowne, then called on Germany, who Aziz felt were the only other nation in the West capable of applying substantial pressure on France. Now, I need to make note of a correction from before. I had stated in episode 6 that Germany always held an interest in Morocco, which was one of the key reasons England and France had decided to reach a deal with the Spanish in order to avoid the eventual power scramble, when in fact, German interest in Morocco was actually quite low. But they had been one of the signatory nations, along with England, France, Italy, and Spain, on a treaty back in 1880, which outlined that none of the signatory nations would occupy Morocco without consulting with each other first. So I must have just misinterpreted the source. Sorry about that, folks. Anyway, 
The key thing is that Aziz went to Germany for help against the French, and Bernard von Bülow, the German Chancellor, agreed to support the Sultan's claim for independent sovereignty. But this was not some spur-of-the-moment decision. It had been the result of careful planning between von Bülow and Frederick von Holstein, an influential figure in the German Foreign Ministry, to undermine both the Entente Cordiale and Franco-Russian alliances. So by the end of February 1905, the political and military temperatures in Europe had been just right. Bülow and Holstein were hoping that by supporting the Moroccan Sultan against France, they would be able to cash in on two important gambles. The first was to show England that France was nothing but a paper tiger when it came to German intimidation, and could not be counted on when confronted with an ultimatum. While the second had to do with the ongoing war between Russia and Japan. Bülow and Holstein were quick to note that France had not sent any military support to their Russian ally, largely because Del Casse feared that by doing so, would result in Britain abandoning the Entente Cordiale and declaring war on France in support of Japan. So for Bülow and Holstein anyway, it was clear that it would not take long to convince Tsar Nicholas II that based on France's non-committal to the Russian war effort and in the face of German pressure, that France cannot be counted on either, and would be in Russian best interest to abandon their alliance altogether. Although it should be noted that Del Casse had supported Russia during their war in other ways, he was instrumental in securing the passes of Rushidemsky's Baltic fleet on their 33,000km voyage by providing safe refueling ports in Madagascar and Indochina, but more importantly, had been the voice of reason during the Dogger Bank incident, and was a calming presence when Russian and English tensions were at a breaking point. But if the French and English thought Germany was bluffing in their support of the Sultan, then they got a rude awakening near the end of March of 1905, when Kaiser Wilhelm II, on the assistance of von Bülow and Holstein, decided that he wanted to take an official state visit to Morocco. On March 31st, the Kaiser ship, the Hamburg, arrived at the northern coastal city of Tangier. The people of the city crowded the streets to get a glimpse of the German emperor, who rode through the central square on the back of a white stallion in full military dress, which must have been quite the spectacle to behold, I am sure. After a private meeting with the sultan, Wilhelm made a speech to the crowds out front of Aziz's palace, where he further echoed the statements of von Bülow that Germany would protect the independent sovereignty of Morocco, and proposed an international conference inviting Morocco, England, France, Russia, Germany, Spain, Italy, and the United States all to attend and discuss the situation through diplomatic means. When Del Casse received word of this, he quickly found himself under attack from both sides of the Quai d'Orsay, the foreign ministry in Paris. He was accused of purposely agitating Germany but not abiding by the agreements made back in 1880. Whether this meant Del Casse had not consulted von Bülow beforehand, or that Germany decided that whatever Del Casse had done was not good enough, remains debatable. But regardless, Del Casse was now under siege. If the foreign minister agreed to Wilhelm and Bülow's demand for an international conference, it would mean that France had caved to German pressure, and would spell the end of French credibility. But if they refused, it would give Germany the pretext to declare that France was not interested in diplomacy, and could escalate the situation considerably. So really, it was either the hard way or the harder way. Del Casse naturally took the harder way, and denied the request for a conference, and the attacks on the foreign minister continued to mount. By April 1905, the situation over Morocco was becoming kind of awkward, and no one was really sure what to do next. It is important to point out that all of this, at the end of the day, had nothing to do with Morocco, but had everything to do with the German goal to drive a wedge between France and its allies. 
When foreign diplomats from all over the world asked their German ambassadors what their government was up to, not even they could provide a coherent answer. And what made matters worse was that Wilhelm and Bülow had remained pretty mute on the whole topic since March. But it was in England where things were to become much clearer, because by April 1905, a new generation of leaders, known in history as the Germanophobes, had come to occupy influential posts in London and abroad. But who exactly were these guys? Well, to put it simply, the Germanophobes were a loose collection of up-and-coming idealistic men, who had come to identify that Germany was the central destabilizing force in Europe. Of course, there had always been a portion in the English Parliament who remained suspicious of Germany, but since the failed talks of Joseph Chamberlain in the news that Germany had announced their intentions to build an ocean-going fleet after the passing of Alfred von Tirpitz's naval laws, it was clear to many that Germany and crazy Kaiser Bill had to be contained. And so, the Germanophobes, whose ranks consisted of Arthur Nicholson, British ambassador in Spain, and future Foreign Secretary Sir Edward Grey, began to pressure Lansdowne and Prime Minister Arthur Balfour not to abandon France in the face of German pressure. They argued that although the Entente Cordiale was not a military pact, if Britain could not stand by a simple diplomatic agreement, then it would make the English look to be just as scared of Germany as France would be if they agreed to the international conference. So really guys, this affects us just as much as it affects them. So on May 25th, Lord Lansdowne met with the embattled Delcasse and told the French foreign minister that France had Britain's support and was open to discussing any and all contingencies in order to guarantee that. Now, what could all contingencies mean? Well, I can tell you that Delcasse interpreted to mean that Britain was open to a military alliance aimed against Germany, which could be just what the doctor ordered to get von Bülow and Holstein to back down. But it did not take long for von Bülow to catch wind of this. Instead of notifying Delcasse, which would have been customary, von Bülow sent a direct telegraph to Delcasse's boss, the French Prime Minister Maurice Rouvet, with a grim message. The German Chancellor had raised the stakes, and told Rouvet that if his foreign minister did not stop the military talks with Lansdowne and resign his position immediately, then Germany would be forced to see this as an act of aggression, and would be inclined to begin the necessary steps to counter this supposed threat. But it should be noted that this did not mean von Bülow was hoping for war. Quite the opposite, actually. Earlier that year, a report from the German High Command had indicated that the French military, still in shambles from the Dreyfus Affair, was in no way prepared for a conflict against Germany. So Bülow gambled that with Russia tied up in the war with Japan, and no existing military terms with the English, Rivet would have to bend to German demands, because running the risk of a war with Germany was simply out of the question. By early June, however, Delcasse's position was beginning to weaken but he defended the idea of a military alliance with Britain because in his estimation, even a small British force would be sufficient enough to divert a significant chunk of the German army away from France's eastern border. Maurice Rouvet was unimpressed. He, like many others, still saw Delcasse as the man responsible for this whole mess. The French Prime Minister protested against Delcasse's pleas, and in a cruel twist of irony, used the same logic von Bülow had used against Chamberlain just a few years earlier. How would the British be of any help to us if the German army was heading straight for Paris, Rouvet asked. After all, the Royal Navy does not run on wheels. On June 6, 1905, exhausted from his labors, Théoville Delcasse, the architect of the Anglo-French Entente Cordiale, resigned, and his removal from office signaled a huge diplomatic victory for Germany. Not only had the French Prime Minister crumbled in the face of German intimidation, but just a week prior, the Russian Baltic fleet had just suffered the catastrophic defeat in the Tsushima Strait. 
Germany's two encircling rivals had been dealt devastating blows within a matter of days, all without Germany ever having to lift a rifle. So in Berlin, it was good times. But fortunately for France, von Bülow could simply not resist sticking his foot in his mouth. Instead of taking his winnings and calling it a day, he decided to push his luck. The German Chancellor then demanded that Rouvet, who had taken up Delcasse's old responsibilities, accept the international conference from Morocco anyway, and if he did not, guess what? Germany would see it as an act of aggression and would take the necessary precautionary steps. Rouvet was absolutely furious. He had been forced to dismiss his capable foreign minister for these guys, and they were still not happy? What gives? But of course, the fear of war was always a strong deterrent, and Rouvet, through grounded teeth, agreed to the conference, which would be held in the Spanish city of Algeciras in January of 1906. But for the rest of the summer and into the autumn of 1905, the German position would begin to weaken. In July, Lord Lansdowne, who was just as distraught over Delcasse's resignation, pledged his government's support for France when the Moroccan conference began. The British Foreign Secretary knew that Rouvet had been bullied and double-crossed into accepting the arrangement, and with the growing anti-German sentiment within Parliament, it meant that Lansdowne had a significant chunk of both Balfour's government and the opposition behind him. Meanwhile, in July 1905, with the war between Russia and Japan now at an end, Tsar Nicholas II, facing both internal and external pressure in the wake of Russia's catastrophic defeat, agreed to meet with Wilhelm II near the Finnish town of Bjorko. I hope I was somewhat close to pronouncing that correctly. The appearance of the meeting was that Wilhelm was only there to counsel the Tsar and give him advice on how to rebuild his nation's honor, but it quickly became clear that the Kaiser was hoping to convince Nicholas to sign a mutual defense pact between their two nations, but in order to do that, the Kaiser would have to persuade Nicholas to abandon the alliance with France. Wilhelm pulled out all the punches. Appealing to Nicholas's sensitive personality, the Kaiser went on the offensive, attacking the French at every possible opportunity. France had abandoned Russia in its time of need. France was secretly speaking to England, Russia's mortal enemy in the Far East, don't forget. And of course, that France, agreeing to the Moroccan conference, was still scared of Germany. So basically, the French were useless and could not be depended on. The Kaiser even went as far as to bring up Napoleon, in which ancestors from both Germany and Russia had played a role in stopping the French commander's march across Europe. Nicholas, who personally detested Wilhelm because he found him rude and overly loud, actually agreed to the terms, which called for Germany and Russia to, quote, aid the contracting party with all its military and naval forces in the event of any European state attacking one or the other. As this was a mutual defense pact, the any European state was left open to interpretation, and historians debate whether it was France or Britain whom the Kaiser had in mind. But what is important is what happened after. The Russian Tsar, just hoping to get rid of Wilhelm, signed the paper, and Russia and Germany were now full military partners. But not really. Because when Nicholas II sent a copy of the treaty to his foreign minister, Count Vladimir Lambsdorff, who I incorrectly referred to as Lord Lambsdorff last week, the foreign minister was quick to note that as part of the Franco-Russian alliance, neither side could agree to military terms with a third party unless it had been approved by the other signatory. In other words, France would have to sign this treaty in order for it to become official. Of course, Rouvet's government would see it as being aimed against France, and would never agree to it. Lambsdorff advised the Tsar to throw it away, because not only would it mean an end to Russia's relationship with France, but more importantly, the end of French money, 
which they still really, really needed. So the treaty was left dead, but it does represent a major shift in overall diplomacy. Wilhelm had not consulted with von Bülow beforehand, and the German Chancellor was furious with the Kaiser. With the treaty now nothing more than a scrap of paper, it showed to Russia and France that German leadership was not as unified as it appeared to be back in February and March, but also that Russia, when faced with the option of an alliance with Germany, did not fall to the salesman's pitch, and chose France at the end of the day, serving to bring the two powers closer together. But it was in September when the diplomatic tides really began to retreat from German favor. That month, the German naval commander Alfred von Tirpitz announced his plans to openly challenge Great Britain for control of the seas. Tirpitz was responding to rumors that had been filtering through his office since February that the British First Sea Lord, Admiral John Fisher, had begun looking into the creation of a faster, heavier, and more powerful battleship which would make all other naval vessels obsolete. This phantom ship, which was kept in absolute secrecy throughout the year, reportedly weighed almost 18,000 tons, and armed with 10 12-inch cannons at a top speed of over 20 knots. To put that into perspective, Admiral Rushitensky's flagship, the Suvorov, from the doomed Russian Baltic fleet, was considered state-of-the-art at the time, and weighed only 15,000 tons, and at a top speed of only 17 knots. So yes, this new ship was indeed a game-changer. The problem facing Tirpitz, though, was that he was already in the third and final stage of his own naval construction program, and had designed the German fleet with the most powerful battleships weighing only 16,000 tons, which meant that the German ships were now obsolete as well. So the news of this new battleship meant that Tirpitz's naval plan was now in complete disarray, and he had spent much of the summer trying to secure the funds from the Reichstag in order to modify his construction program to meet this new English threat. Tirpitz's decision to announce his challenge in September to Fisher's new warship could not have come at a better time, because in early October 1905, the British Admiralty had begun to lay the first planks of what was the HMS Dreadnought, the most powerful and technologically advanced weapon at the time. The Dreadnought essentially reset navies of the world back to zero. It was quicker, had more powerful weaponry, thicker armor, and even featured what I can make out to be an early computerized fire control system. But of course, with a weapon of this magnitude meant that every other battleship, cruiser, or whatever attack vessel you can think of was now vastly inferior. And so whatever naval advantages the state had enjoyed up to this point was now in serious jeopardy with the emergence of this new dreadnought class. Now, there is an interesting debate among historians over what Admiral Fisher's intentions really were with the launching of the Dreadnought. The most accepted belief is that Fisher, being the firm believer of adopting radical technologies that he was, had wanted the Dreadnought from the very beginning, and had ordered its construction ahead of everyone else to give the Royal Navy a jumpstart over its rivals, because it is clear that the Italians, Americans, Russians, and more importantly the Germans, had also been experimenting with similar designs at this time. But a new school of thought, championed by revisionist historians such as Nicholas Lambert and John Semita, have argued that to Admiral Fisher, the dreadnought was actually just a means to an end. In their view, Fisher had agreed to the dreadnought in order to please growing opposition within the Admiralty, who argued that after the Battle of Tsushima, powerful battleships were the future of naval warfare. But according to Lambert and Semita, Fisher believed that a cheaper and more maneuverable armada composed mainly of smaller battle cruisers, along with submarines and torpedo boats, was the way of the future. And so Fisher only agreed to the dreadnought as a way of testing out new gunnery platforms and steam turbine engines, which he planned on later adapting to his battle cruisers such as the HMS Invincible, which was undergoing construction at the same time. 
Now, I don't know how I feel about Lambert and Samita's argument, since it does appear to be based on a lot of assumptions made up from limited evidence. But it is clear that Fisher had correctly identified that Tirpitz was trying to bring the German navy into direct competition with England, and so ordered the dreadnought in order to throw a wrench into his German counterpart's gears. But regardless of what Fisher actually intended, Tirpitz took up Fisher's challenge, and the great pre-war naval race between Germany and Great Britain that we all know and love was on. Germany could no longer hide their naval intentions from the English, and in December of 1905, the Unionist government under Arthur Balfour fell in the general election, and the Liberal Party under Henry Campbell Bannerman came to power. Replacing Lord Lansdowne as Foreign Secretary was Sir Edward Grey, one of the most important figures in British pre-war diplomacy, and a man who harbored deep suspicions of Germany, especially with the shadow of the dreadnought naval race hanging over everything. So when the world showed up to the conference on January 16, 1906, to discuss the situation in Morocco, the German position had slipped considerably. In front of France, Britain, Russia, the United States, Japan, Spain, and Austria-Hungary and Italy, their two allies, it was clear that Germany really had nothing to go off of. The Entente Cordiale between France and Britain had become hardened since the resignation of Del Casse in the subsequent German naval challenge, and Wilhelm's failed attempt at alliance with Nicholas had driven the Russians closer to France. And even the Austro-Hungarian representative had advised the German delegate, Count Tottenbach, to withdraw his government's claim for complete Moroccan sovereignty. In the end, it was a complete debacle for Bülow and Wilhelm. When the Algeciras Conference wrapped up on April 7, 1906, Morocco had been granted an extended warranty on its independence, but only in a very limited sense. Its policing was to be maintained by France and Spain, but its finances and banking were left solely to the French, effectively putting them in direct control of Morocco's economic development. However, a central state bank was set up, in which each signatory power, including Germany, were allowed to appoint administrators and float loans to Morocco. The reasoning behind this bank was to place a cap on the amount of spending Abdulaziz can make. In other words, it was like an allowance for his government, and if the Sultan misspent at any time, that he could expect no more bailout from the Europeans. But this also meant that Germany still had a legal interest in the country, and if you've been reading ahead, you are no doubt aware that in 1911, a second international crisis would erupt over Morocco, again, over very similar circumstances. So be sure to keep this point in mind. In the wake of this diplomatic disaster, the old fear of encirclement began to creep back into the minds of the Kaiser and the High Chiefs of Staff. The lack of support from the Austro-Hungarians and Italians had led them to believe that they could no longer depend on either. The Moroccan crisis of 1905-1906 had begun as a German victory but resulted in a humiliating defeat which would force Germany to take a more aggressive stance in the future. Von Bülow had put the Entente Cordiale and the Franco-Russian alliances to the test, and they had only been strengthened through what they saw to be deliberate German sabotage. Heading forward, it would be much easier for France, Britain, and Russia to become more suspicious and uneasy about German intentions. But the dispute over Morocco had one more lasting impact. During the negotiations at Algeciras, the Russian Foreign Affairs Minister Count Lambsdorff resigned from office, largely because he did not want to deal with the Duma, that civilian representative assembly which Nicholas authorized during the Winter Revolts of 1905. Lambsdorff's replacement was a man by the name of Alexander Izvolsky, who, having witnessed the Winter Revolts of 1905 in the Russo-Japanese War, was determined to give Russia an era of peace and prosperity. Izvolsky had come to see that Russia's future was not in the Far East, but in Europe. But in order to allow Russia to focus towards the West, 
It needed to tie up loose ends and secure its eastern frontiers, which meant reaching an agreement with their old colonial rival, Great Britain. Following the Algeciras Conference, Arthur Nicholson, the English diplomat who had represented Britain at the table, was promoted by Sir Edward Grey to be Britain's ambassador in St. Petersburg. The Liberal government, under Henry Campbell Bannerman, to whom both Grey and Nicholson served, had come to power in December 1905 on the platform that they would bring more stable relations with both Germany and Russia. But by April 1906, the chance of a better relationship with Germany was slim to nil, so Campbell's government had to make good on at least one campaign promise, and so allowed Nicholson to open talks with Izvolsky. Great Britain and Russia would eventually reach a deal by August 31, 1907. The talks lasted nearly 16 months, and focused primarily on the disputes surrounding Central Asia, particularly Russian interests in Afghanistan, which had been coveted for years. But the English had always protested Russian occupation of the country because they feared it would threaten the stability of India, the so-called crown jewel of the British Empire. It was clear in London that even after their war with Japan, Russia could still feel an army of some 230,000 men, and there arose a concern when the British War Office Committee produced a report in early 1907 that suggested that if Russia were to decide to occupy Afghanistan, British finances, already strained due to the naval race with Germany, would be unable to fund a proper expedition to reinforce India. So for Nicholson, it came down to the simple fact that if Britain wanted to protect India, it would need to reach an agreement with Russia over Afghanistan. By August 1907, the final document entitled The Anglo-Russian Agreement Concerning Persia, or the Anglo-Russian Entente for short, was signed by both Nicholson and Izvolsky. The agreement outlined that Tibet would serve as a natural buffer between Russian interest in China and British interest in the South, namely in India and Burma. Izvolsky agreed to drop the Russian claim for Afghanistan, but in concession, Persia, the land which is roughly modern-day Iran and Iraq, was divided between the two empires, with Russia getting the richer northern territory along the coast of the Caspian Sea, while Britain would retain a sphere of influence in the South, bordering Afghanistan and the Persian Gulf. And in case you were wondering, no, no one in Persia had been consulted about any of this. The agreement, like the Entente Cordiale, was purely diplomatic, and no pledges of military or economic support were made in any way, shape, or form. But it does come to have a very significant impact on our story. Because now, what do we have here? With the Anglo-Russian Entente, the Entente Cordiale, and the Franco-Russian Alliance, we now have the counterweight to the Triple Alliance of Germany, Austria, Hungary, and Italy as the three agreements come to make up the famous Triple Entente between Britain, France, and Russia. But there is one key difference, and this is just a pet peeve of mine when I hear accounts of the origins of the Great War. Many historians and schoolteachers commonly say that on the eve of the First World War, there was the Triple Alliance of Germany, Austria, Hungary, Italy, and the Triple Entente of Britain, France, and Russia. I know this because I heard it too. And folks, that statement is a bunch of baloney. Yes, the powers of the so-called Triple Entente would end up going to war against the Triple Alliance, but the key difference is that Britain, even in August 1914, had no military obligations to either France or Russia, nor did they have any military obligations towards Britain, and never, at any time, did the British ever consider expanding their agreements into formal military alliances, which meant that the Triple Entente was really just three separate treaties signed between three separate nations over three completely separate issues. There was nothing which wrapped it all up in a bow, so in other words, the only reason why we call it the Triple Entente is purely for historical convenience, 
because in reality, the Triple Entente never existed. This is important to keep in mind going forward, as it does help to explain why Britain would delay their entry into the war in 1914. Indeed, Great Britain, France, and Russia would come to depend on each other more and more as we edge closer to 1914. But to quote Gordon Martel, a professor of history at the University of Northern British Columbia, the diplomatic revolution that took place between 1904 to 1907 represented a shift in mood and emphasis. It did not represent the forging of a coalition that made war inevitable or even predictable. Next week, things will start to turn bad really fast. Because in 1908, Austria-Hungary, remember them, would make a move to annex the territory of Bosnia and Herzegovina, which it had won protectorate status over way back during the Congress of Berlin in 1878. Russia, who still felt attached to the pan-Slavic ideals in the Balkans, would protest, and the result was another crisis over the Balkans, which would slowly bring the European states down in a vortex. But before we go, I would like to send a special thank you to the guys over at the Beyond the Foxhole podcast, who gave the Great War podcast a nice recommendation on their latest episode. I've included a link to their podcast along with this episode, so if you are a fan of painting, model building, and tabletop games, or just a military history geek, be sure to give them a listen. They really know their stuff, and it's a lot of fun. So thanks for sticking by, and we'll see you next week.